All right. Good to see you guys back tonight. Thanks for coming back. I, I told Pastor Fender this morning it was scary for him to announce that I was preaching tonight, that nobody might, might show up. So thank you guys for loving me and coming back. And I just want to start by saying, for me, growing up, acceptance, affirmation, those were the deep longings of my heart. That's what I wanted. It may be a BB gun and a four-wheeler. But aren't those kind of markers of affirmation, too, that your parents say, you're mature enough? So I grew up in a, in a small town in Fitzgerald in South Georgia. It's about three hours south of here. If you ever want to visit, the best thing to do is just drive south for about three hours. And when you get to the middle of nowhere, just go about 10 more minutes, and you'll be right pretty close. Both sets of my grandparents lived there, and all my aunts and uncles uh, lived there, and 10 cousins, all boys all lived together. No one had moved away. I don't know if that was scary or not. I was the second oldest of all my cousins, but I was my grandmother's favorite, and that was well earned. I worked hard to be her favorite. I tried my best at obeying, my best at listening. I tried to appreciate the things that she would appreciate, and that my mom would appreciate, or my dad would appreciate. I helped my mom in the kitchen. Why? Because I wanted her to accept me. I wanted her to love me played football, and I practiced really, really hard at it because that was my dad's greatest pleasure. I don't know why, but it was. Um, and everyone likes kids with good grades, right? So I worked super hard to get good grades, and I ended up being the valedictorian of our little school. I had this inner desire to get this acceptance, to get this affirmation from others. I felt like I needed it. And my family had grown up in the, in the, in the local Baptist church there in a little small town. And I'd been taking... Um, to church every Sunday for as long as I could remember. In fact, I was, I was supposed to be named Albert, and that would have been bad for a chunky kid in, in the 90s. Um, but by God's good, good, good providence, the pastor preached on Luke the week before I was born, and here I am. Luke means bringer of light. I know this because my mom had crocheted this little piece and it hung above my bed every night where I laid my head. It said, bringer of light on it. And as a child, I can remember wanting to get baptized because I thought that's how you get God's acceptance. That's what you do. And I didn't shy away from praying at the dinner table. I thought that's what good children do to earn God's acceptance, particularly against my misbehaving heathen cousins. Now, they're not all heathen now, but at that point, I'm pretty sure they were. And it was going well. My, my, my theology was working until the summer of 1995 while I was at a summer camp in Norman Park, Georgia. The preacher preached this passage from Isaiah 64. That's what we'll look at tonight. Um, and it totally wrecked every plan that I had for salvation. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah 64 and we'll read that text. It'll be our primary text for tonight. Isaiah 64, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known, to make your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you 
who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, you remember your, who remember your ways. But when we continue to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Yet, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Did you catch it? Did you see it in verse 6 and 7? How in the world could we ever be saved? How could the God of the universe accept me if my righteous acts were like filthy rags? How could the God of the universe accept me if my sins are sweeping me away like a tumbleweed in the desert? My plans to do good enough weren't going to work. They weren't going to get me acceptance from God. They weren't going to get me acceptance from anyone else. Isaiah said, my best deeds, my most thoughtful, sacrificial acts of kindness were like a filthy rag. And as the Lord opened my eyes to the fact that my soteriology was faulty, I was re reminded of this mentor of sorts. Um, she was not the mentor you would choose usually, but God had placed her in my life. She was a swim coach. I know you guys are thinking, y'all are laughing at me. Y'all didn't know I was on the swim team, did you? Um, it was my swim coach who had been a part of my life for the, for the previous five years, Miss Caroline. She'd shared the love of Jesus with me, and she shared it with most of the people in my family. And I'd always brushed her off because I was good enough. I had my, I had my life together. But in this moment, when I realized I wasn't good enough, in this moment, God was gracious to me. He brought back the things that she had been teaching me. She told us things like, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge me, and I will make your path straight. Or John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believed in him might have eternal life. Or maybe it was John 14, 6. She had this little song. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or maybe it, was, maybe it was that other little song she taught us about Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it clicked for me in that moment. It's in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ that I have eternal life. It's in Christ that I'm accepted. It's in Christ that I have hope. Not in my good works, not in my good deeds, not in my academic success, but in Christ. In Christ alone can I have eternal life. In Christ alone can I have a relationship with the Father. Let's look at Isaiah 64, 6, and let's see what it says to us. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. This verse is not just true for me. It's true for all of us. Look at what it says. All of us have become like one who's unclean. Isaiah, the prophet himself, says he in, is included as well. And that word unclean, I didn't know this then as a 13-year-old, but that word unclean would be the, the same word that um, the, the priest might mark you with. It's tall may. It means you're religiously declared unclean, religiously 
impure. And according to the, the standards of Leviticus 5 and Leviticus 7, um, that person must cry out when they went out in public, Talmay, Talmay, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. Don't touch me or you too might become contaminated. Do you feel the weight of that? I didn't understand it then. But I should have been telling others I was so sinful in the way I was going about my life that I was, I was, um, I should have been letting him know, don't touch me, I'm unclean. Secondly, look at what he says. He says, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. All. Not one of my righteous acts is left out. Surely there's one of them that kind of meets the standard, right? At least one of them gets a hundred on the test, right? He says, all. All of our righteous acts. Those are our acts that are good, that are wholesome. You know, the ones that are supposed to be acceptable to God. The ones that God's supposed to give me an attaboy for. All of those acts are idah. They're like a cloth defiled from menstruation. A cloth of a leper. Idah. That's what my good acts were to God. They were trash. I can only imagine what he would say about those that we know to be sinful. That's what he said about my righteous acts. We know this next phrase. It says, we all shrivel like a leaf. Here in the fall, we know what that looks like, right? It's a metaphor that we're, we're accustomed to. We see the trees go from vibrant green and full of life, and they start to shrivel and turn brown and get crusty and crunchy and dead. And what happens? They fall off the tree. They're blown around by the wind, just waiting to get discarded. Our sins sweep us away. It isn't God that sweeps us away. It isn't God that robs us of life. Our iniquities sweep us away. Our iniquities take us away from that acceptance and affirmation. Isaiah follows. He says, no one calls on your name. The people of God have forgotten to place trust in God. This was me. I was trying to do it all on my own. I was trying to do it all by my own thoughts, by my own actions, by my own plans. I wasn't calling on God. And in my worst moments, I still contend in this direction. I find myself in situations thinking, I can get myself out of this. He says, no one strives to lay hold of you. We find ourselves working really hard in our life, doing it on our own, doing it in my own strength, doing it in my own ways, trying to measure up. And God says, not one of us strives to lay hold of God. It says, for you, God, have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Isaiah gives us a clue here. Look at what he says. He says, you have hidden your face. That's it, right? If I just had the face of Christ, that's what I want, right? That's what I long for. I long for Christ to look and to pay attention. That's what I wanted. And it says, because of my sin, he's turned away. That's what God had to do in my life. God had to take me to this place where I realized that my best efforts were woefully inadequate. I had to see that I couldn't make it on my own. No matter how much I tried, I couldn't make it on my own. There's no way I could get there. Romans 5.20 says it this way. It says, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life 
through Jesus Christ. Do you see that? The law was added that the trespass might increase. Why would the God of the universe want the trespass to increase? Why would he want us to sin more against him? Why would he say that? He wants us to know that our good works can't earn acceptance. We can't earn our way to God. He wants us to know we're going to fall woefully short. And so the law was added that the trespass might increase. But the beauty here is where sin increased. What happened? Grace increased all the more. Grace abounds. Free grace abounds. Sin will not reign. But grace is going to reign through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to bring righteousness to us. Not by our own merit, but by Christ's merit. And through that, we gain eternal life. That's it. I'm accepted. I'm affirmed. I'm made righteous. But not in my own works. Only in the works of Christ on the cross. And it's a completed work. And it's applied to everyone who will, will believe in him. Later on in my life, I would learn that this is a, a core reform doctrine that's commonly referred to as total depravity. And in my life, over and over, God has had to remind me of this truth to drive it home. So if, if DT had to get baptized four times to get here, I've had to get reminded at least four times of this particular lesson. The second time God impressed this lesson on me, I was in a campus outreach Bible study, and we were studying through the book of Ephesians, and we got to chapter 2. Now I had been feeling pretty good about myself. I'd just gotten off of a beach project, which is kind of like a missions trip, and I'd gone back to the dorms, and I was sharing my faith. I was having a quiet time every day. I was leading an evangelistic Bible study, and I was thinking, how proud God must be of me. Look at all these amazing things that I'm doing for you, God. You must be so proud of me as your child. And then Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. This is what messed me up. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Paul said it. He said, as for you, you're dead. Dead? Dead people don't do good works. Dead people don't do anything, particularly anything good. And I was dead in my transgressions. And then he's got to double down and say, like the rest, you're by nature objects of wrath. I don't like that. I still don't like it. He said, by my very nature, the way I come naturally is to be an object of wrath. By nature, object there's total depravity again. Um, but there's so much more hope here. What does he say? But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. We've been made alive. We have acceptance. We have affirmation. We have been chosen by Christ to have life. Not because we're making all A's. Not because we're obeying perfectly. Not because we're successful in our business or we've made a ton of money or we've given that money away. He chose us. He accepted us. He affirms us when we were dead. That's our good God, and that's how much he loves us. 
1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God has chosen me. He affirms me as a chosen people, as a part of his chosen people, as a part of his holy nation. Not because of the good things I've done, like sharing my faith, or studying the Bible, or leading a Bible study. He affirmed me when I was dead, when I'd done nothing, and he made me alive. And he wants the same for you. Because of his great love, because of his great mercy, I've received mercy. As a Christian, I begin to grow in my faith. And this lesson was a lesson that I needed relearning a lot. Um, Because early in my life, I knew that that God had set me apart for mission. In fact, if you had asked me from age 15 to 23 what I was going to be when I grew up, I would have told you the same answer. I would say, God's called me to be a missionary in China. And so I started out on this journey. I was going to go to Georgia Tech. I did. I started at Georgia Tech with the intent of getting a degree in civil engineering and focusing on building bridges because I wanted to go to China as this undercover missionary. It was a, it was a closed country to missionaries at the time, and I only knew one, one missionary in Annie. Um, the Baptist didn't tell me she had died like 100 years earlier. But I was going to go and be a part of her team and share the gospel. Um, in my first semester while I was at Tech, I was, I was doing well in school, and I was staying focused on my mission. And I got into one of those freshman intro classes and the teacher asked us to write a short essay why we were at Georgia Tech, or what we hoped to gain while we were at Georgia Tech. So this is a perfect opportunity, right? I can share my testimony with her. I can share what God's called me to do. And so I did. I wrote, God's called me here. I'm going to learn how to build bridges, and I'm going to go to China, and I'm going to build bridges and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with lost people. And uh, she, she um, came up to me after she had read it, and she said, Luke, that's amazing. But the Chinese are way better than the Americans at building bridges. If you go to China, you're going to teach English. Um, This was a surprise to me for two reasons. One, you don't go to Georgia Tech to learn how to teach English. Those classes are way too hard for that. Secondly, no one had ever told me or anyone else from South Georgia that we should be an English teacher. Um, We do talk slow. But grammar is typically not my strong suit, okay? Um, But this new knowledge led me to transfer to Georgia College and to pursue a degree in education so I can be an English teacher to win lost souls to Christ in China. Towards the end of my college career, I was in pursuit of of a a missionary opportunity with ELIC. When I got a call from Mike Karam, Mike called me. I remember it pretty clearly. It was the Monday before Thanksgiving. And he said, hey, I'd, I'd like for you to drive up to Augusta and meet with me. And as a, as a senior in college, I had no idea what that meant. I didn't know if I was in trouble. I didn't know if I was about to get kicked out of Campus Outreach forever. And we sat in Mike's office, and, and Mike did what Mike does. He Obi-Wan Kenobi'd me and said, you should come here, and you should, you should um, be on staff of Campus Outreach. I told Mike, Mike, I, I haven't graduated college yet. I it's, still have a whole semester left, have this amazing ministry. And Mike said, you shall come. Um, so I, I didn't commit to Mike at that moment. I said, I'll pray about it. And I got in my car and I drove back to Milledgeville. 
On the drive back to Milledgeville, I was praying and just asking the Lord, Lord, I'm yours. I'll do whatever you want me to do. If this is where you've called me, that's what I'll do. And by the time I got back to, to Milledgeville, I was so convinced this was God's will for my life. I drove straight to the registrar's office, and I dropped my classes, and I asked her how should I proceed to take classes at Augusta State so I could still graduate and get my degree in May. And God in his good providence worked all those things out. It wasn't easy because I dropped all those classes. I had no idea if I would get accepted as a student at AU. I didn't have a plan to go to AU. I didn't know if they even offered the classes that I needed. Um, but in God's good providence, he allowed me to, to finish my school, to manage the finances, and begin to move here. It is God in his rich mercy that accepts us, that affirms us, not because we deserve it, not because I'd earned it, but because he's gracious and he's merciful toward us. I want to take you back to 1 Peter 2 for just a moment. There are three short little words in that verse that I skipped over that gave me great affirmation in this time. Right there in the middle, this powerful verse on identity, God says this, that you may. It's only ten letters, short little simple words. But those ten letters gave me all the permission, all the affirmation, and all the blessing that I needed. God's saying, I chose you, and you may. You have permission. You have permission to participate in what I'm doing. And what did he give me permission to do? Look at what he says. I get the privilege to declare the praise of him who called me out of darkness into his wonderful light. We get to be a part of that. We get to declare the praise of him, to declare the praise of God, to tell others what God has done. Oh, what a privilege. It brought back a lot of memories to me. In my early days here as a single staff guy, I would come and I'd sit right over there. And uh, in the bulletin, I'd, I'd eagerly get here and open the bulletin. Because in the welcome section of the bulletin, the first line said this. It just said, it is our great privilege. We have no greater privilege than to come and meet with the living God. And it just warmed me every week just to read that statement week after week. God affirms us. God accepts us. Not by our own works. Not because we've deserved it. But because of his mercy and grace. I often forget that amazing truth. But God reminds us. One instance, he used Isaiah 6 to remind me. It says this in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. They were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, for I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The one, then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. God used that passage to remind me of his holiness. Thrice holy are the angels crying out. And at, at their voices, the, th the threshold shake. 
Reminds me a lot of what's going on in the first part of Isaiah 64 when he says, rend the heavens and come down and the mountains will shake before you. The nations will shake before you. The mountains again will shake before you. In the Hebrew, it's very easy to see. It's the same language over and over and over. Our English language translates it slightly differently. But in the Hebrew, it's the same words. And likewise, in in verse 4, Isaiah says, no one has heard, no eye has seen. That's the same prophecy that God had already given him in Isaiah 6, isn't it? When he says, go and tell us people, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never um, perceiving. And then Isaiah 64, 6, the, the verse that really drew me to, to God himself. It's the same as what Isaiah says in Isaiah 6, right? He comes before God and he says, woe to me, woe is me. Who am I to stand before a holy God? Who am I? I'm the potty mouth prophet. I'm the prophet with an unclean lips, and I live among the people with unclean lips. And you want to use me, God? You want to use me as a prophet? What does God do? He provides the fire from the altar. Isaiah didn't ask for it. Isaiah didn't know he needed it. He brings it and he says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are atoned for. It's not Isaiah's action. It's God's good mercy towards him. Whether it's Isaiah 64, whether it's Isaiah 2, I mean Isaiah 6, or whether it's Ephesians 2, whatever text I'm studying today, in Christ alone do I find acceptance. In Christ alone can we find true affirmation. I want to end with one last story of where God has, has our family today. He's letting me begin to see a little bit of in just a small way, his love and his grace from his point of view. Many of you know that my wife, Tina, and I, we've been in, involved in foster care for the past five years. And two years ago, God placed this little girl in our life. Um, she's a girl we absolutely love. And we're near the end of the process to adopt her. God's given me this, this glimpse of how he views acceptance, how he views affirmation. She's a total mess. She's fast. She can destroy a toy room in a matter of minutes. She's smart. She's super manipulative. She's perceptive. The other day I was correcting her, and she, she just looks at me and says, Daddy, are you angry? Yes, I am angry. <laughs> and she regularly wears us out. But we love her. And we're willing to sacrifice whatever comforts this life might afford. Whatever it might look like to have an organized house or regular sleep or nice dinner conversations without getting interrupted. Whatever it takes, we're willing to sacrifice that she can be a part of our family. God loves us and accepts us and affirms us infinitely more than what I can do as a, as a father in this world. Infinitely more. And he has infinitely more joy, just like we have for Kate. He has infinitely more joy than we're able to experience as objects of his mercy. Praise be to this great God. Let's pray. God, we thank you. That you are a God who loves us. 
God, you are not deterred by our sin. You are not deterred by how awful we can be. But by your great mercy, by your great love, you saved me. And you saved all of those in this room who've trusted in you. Not because of what we've done, but because of your mercy. God, I pray that we would be men and women who would live out of that mercy, who would live out of that grace, who would live under the truth of Second Peter, we've been chosen, we've been set apart as a holy nation, that we may declare your glory. God, I pray that we do that. I pray use us in our community to be salt and light wherever we may go. In Christ's name, amen.